We'll be reading Proverbs 27. Proverbs chapter 27. This is the second sermon in this chapter. I'll be reviewing part of the beginning and then focusing on the second half of the chapter. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let a man, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, the stranger and not your own lips. The stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul tramples down the honeycomb. But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by a hearty counsel. Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your father's house in the day of your calamity your brother's house, in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. My son, be wise and make my heart glad, that I may answer him who reproaches me. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. Take the garment of him who is a surety surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. A continual dripping on a very rainy day, and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind, and grasps oil with his right hand. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit, so he who waits on his master will be honored. As in water face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. Hell and destruction, or Sheol and destruction, are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. And a man is valued by what others say of him. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, The lambs will provide your clothing, and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. You may be seated. All right, you'll remember we're in Collection 5 in the book of Proverbs, and Collection 5 is about those who are in positions of authority, so it's dealing with those who are in authority, but they're also still under some sort of authority. So courtiers, people that report to a king or whatever. So this is about being in a position of leadership. And it talks about friendship. And there's lots of stuff about friendship earlier on in Proverbs for the young man and, and for he who is you know, the head of a house and, and things like that. But friendship becomes something that there are more and more ways that you can have problems, betrayals, dangers caused by friends who are not solid as you enter into more and more important work as you go higher and higher up. And so we have this consideration of friends and friendship. And you remember we talked about how there's this initial part of Collection 5 where it talks about the battle of the wicked and the righteous in the halls of power. And so the friends, the allies, the people that you work with in the halls of power to stop the wicked from reigning and controlling things and causing the seat of justice and judgment to be perverted, that the friends you work with there, it's about that battle. So these are friends in the foxhole. Now, in addition to that, there is the fact that when you engage in public service 
unless you're taking bribes, you're probably using up your resources rather than gaining resources. And so that being the case, we're reminded at the end of this chapter to make sure to care for your own resources, your own estate, your own property, your own capital goods. And so managing property well makes it so you have property that you can use for public service. And so having a good household management is not to be neglected once you enter into public service. So you remember also, chapter 27, there's a structure here to the first part. So the first part, friends are looked at from the perspective of friends. And then we also have, in the second part, friends being looked at from the perspective of parents. So verses 1 and 2, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth a stranger and not your own lips. First, be careful not to boast about what you're going to do and be careful to not boast about yourself, even present things or past things. Instead, what's the value? One of the things that friends do is they help each other to build reputation. They do that by praising each other. Not flattery, not flattery, not flattery. What do they do? They praise honest virtues, real virtues, And so you look for real virtues, fruits of the Spirit. And if you're a friend to somebody else, you're going to notice those things. You're going to find the things that are virtuous in your friends. And you're going to encourage them, and you're going to praise that to others. Now, verses 3 and 4 talk about certain relationships that are impossible to maintain. Friendships that, that aren't really friendships. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Right? If you have a fool as a friend, they're going to become furious. There's anger as a problem. There's raging. And so a fool is a danger in general, but an angry fool, the wrath of a fool, is heavier than sand or stones. What does that mean? Remember, When you're doing work, if you have rocks in your backpack, it's going to slow you down. If you put bags of sand on your belt, it's going to use up your energy. That idea that the wrath of a fool slows down your ability to make progress. It uses up your energy. It slows you down. Why is that? When people are angry in general, they're harder to deal with. Fools won't allow a wise answer to settle their wrath. So their wrath continues even when the cause of their anger has been addressed. It consumes your energy and time. They continue to rage and you have to continue dealing with it. And so it slows down progress. Now, in addition to that, not only is the fool's wrath heavier than sand or stone, a wrath is cruel, and anger a torrent. So it doesn't just slow you down, it causes damage. Wrath is cruel. The wrathful fool will harm you. They will not only slow you down, they will destroy. And the destruction causes the things that you care about, the things that you've built, to be undone. And so not only is it that you are slowed down, but there's destruction. And when there's destruction, progress requires you to rebuild. And so now you've got destruction and you're going to be slowed down and you don't even get to keep progressing. You have to rebuild the things that were already done. Slower, redoing, destruction. So you have to be careful about the raging fool. And then, if the raging fool is jealous, possessive, in a wrongful way, envious, covetousness, right? then there's sort of this anger about the the things that you progress in. If you have a victory, they're not happy with you. They don't rejoice with you. They are angry that you got it and not them. And so the good stuff you do becomes a provocation of the fool. So you make progress, it might set them off to destroy. 
There's the triple set of this danger of the fool. You make progress, could set them off. Set them off, they might destroy. If they destroy, you're going to be slowed down. Because their wrath is heavier than sand or stones. So be careful about those people and be careful not to be that person. Chapter 27, verses 5 to 10. These are principles about friends and friendship. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Talk about how if you love somebody, you're going to care about their failings, right? And so if you love somebody and you care about their failings and then you don't talk to them about it, you are carefully concealing your love. Right? That's not good. You know what's better is with your friends tell you what you're doing wrong. If you love somebody, you're taking a risk when you tell them what they're doing wrong. The risk is what if they're angry? What if they respond back in a destructive way? What if they reject the relationship? And so the open rebuke from a friend is them taking a risk. So this is an encouragement. Verse 5 is an encouragement. If you consider yourself a friend, a brother, then give rebuke to the ones you love. You don't rebuke everything all at once. You figure out what's the most destructive thing in their life. What's the biggest deal? What's the most basic failing there? And help to focus on that and to encourage repentance in that area. Verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. This is an encouragement to the receiver. If your friend comes to you and rebukes you, that wound is faithful. That person is seeking your good. Don't react by striking them back. Because then you'd be the fool that was just warned about. The wrath of a fool, what happens with that? Don't be that. So we're told, faithful the wounds of a friend. At the same time, when your enemies kiss you, when your enemies flatter you, when your enemies give you nice things, it's not for your good. They are not trying to help you. They are setting you up. Verse 7. A satisfied soul tramples on the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Now, it's possible to get a lot of something that's good and to despise it. It's possible to get lots of sweetness and to find it to become bitter or disgusting to you when you receive too much of it in a certain time frame. And in the context of friendship, this is about not overexposing yourself to your friends, not being in their house too much, not being in their business too much, not doing too much toward them, but instead to realize that there is a sweetness that comes from hunger. There's a sweetness that comes from allowing some time to pass between giving more honey. And in verse 8, we're told where should we spend our time while we're waiting. Well, like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place or home. So you need to be focused upon your stations of duty. Don't spend all your time finding friends to spend time with. This is the temptation of the young, especially, by the way. The young are particularly prone to want to spend all their time with friends outside of their home as opposed to doing their duties in their households. And so this can be a temptation of when you become prominent also. Because all of a sudden you get invitations to lots of things. Lots of people want your time. And you can fail to care for your home. There's a duty in the home. There's a duty in your station. What are your stations? What are your callings? Be careful to not abandon them. Don't be like a bird that's wandered from its nest. Stay in your place. Know where your duties are. Ointment and perfume delight the heart. And the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Remember that hearty counsel is literally counsel of soul. That counsel that's deep within you that you are careful not to give all the time because when you are honest with people about things, a lot of times that can cause problems, right? Sometimes just being silent is the wise thing. But to your friends, you should be able to give counsel that is your soul counsel. 
Those are the people that you're able to share the deepest things with, your friends, your brothers, those who you have a loyalty to and who have a loyalty to you. You're mutually committed to doing what is good, to grow in the knowledge of God, to spread the knowledge of God. And the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight. What is that sweetness and how does it give delight? By the counsel of the soul. The counsel of the soul, those conversations, they are like ointment and perfume. But at the same time, remember verse 7, a satisfied soul tramples even on the honeycomb sometime. Things that are sweet, if there's too much of it, it causes it to be despised. So we want to give soul counsel to others, but we also want to make sure that we are not abandoning our stations or being busy bodies. Verse 10, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Remember, there are limitations on people's power and their resources. The further away somebody is from you, the less they're able to communicate, the less they're able to understand the situation, the less they're able to provide help with resources. It's more difficult for them to do all of those things. And so, there's a value of concentration. One of the principles of strategy for war is the principle of concentration. You concentrate forces in order to be able to project power on the offensive. Now, the church is the concentration point of the saints. The job of the church is to gather and strengthen, to gather and perfect the saints. And by gathering saints, it is a gathering of those who should be friends. And by having a gathering of those who should be friends, there is a gathering of those who should work together for each other's good, for the mission of the glory of God. And that concentration makes it so that we should have brothers and friends and neighbors that are nearby so that we don't have to just call to brothers that are far away. And so it's important to maintain friends. And remember, verse 10 says not to forsake your own friend or your father's friend. There's an assumption. If you're a friend of somebody and they have children, your friendship means you should care about the well-being, not only of your friend, but of his house. And if you are a son or daughter and you have parents, friends, those should be viewed as your friends and as people who can help you in time of need. And so you honor them. You seek to maintain relationship across generations. Friendship should not only be in one generation. The church is not a group of people in one generation separated from every other generation. We are called to have multi-generational fellowship. If you are young and you only hang out with the young, you will be the companion of fools. You will have strength without wisdom. If you are old and you only hang out with the old, you will have wisdom and no power to do anything because strength is the purview of the young. The young and the old should be friends with each other. The friendship of fathers with sons and of the father's friend with the sons and of the sons with the father's friend. That is how. So fathers, you have duties to care to help to establish relationship. Don't just shoo the children away. Help to make them friends. Help to make them work by your side. Help to make them work by the side of other men. Sons, do not despise your fathers or the friends of your fathers. You think the old men are weak because they're old? You might be surprised at old man's strength. You also might be surprised by the wisdom you can gain and how that sharpens the use of your strength. You might be surprised by the fact that their axe is sharp and yours is dull and you can thud away, but they still have a sharp axe. Now, next section. 27, verse 11. Here we have parents talking about friendship. So you get a little bit different perspective. This is the value of friendship, looking at it as a parent. So this first section, verses 11 to 12, why is children become friends of parents and they bring honor to parents? Remember last time I said, you know, a lot of the time, 
it's difficult to train people up to make people into people worthy of being friends. And so most of the time, especially as an adult, friends are found rather than made. But sons and daughters, when rightly raised, when they are adults, they become friends. And so there's an investment there. So there's this counsel of the Father. My son, be wise and make my heart glad. There is no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth. Parents, invest in your children. Put the truth into their hearts. Plant it day by day. As you walk by the way, as you sit in the house, when you rise up and when you lie down. My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. We talked last time. When you have children that are bearing good fruit, that are walking in the truth, people can say what they will about you, but they also will say, you must be doing something right. Look at those kids. The wisdom of children. Wisdom is justified by her children. Verse 12, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. The one being punished here is, you can say the son, if he's not wise, he'll accept punishment, he'll receive chastisement for his sins, but also the parent. A wise parent sees the danger of a foolish child. And in foreseeing that, he takes measures to prevent his child from being foolish. That work of seeing into the future and investing in children requires that you not have an instant gratification attitude. It's a delayed gratification. Raising children is not a microwave. Verse 13. Here are more impossible relationships. So you see how this lines up with the earlier section, right? Here's the list of impossible relationships. We talked about this last time. Weak links, harmful helpers, and shrews. I take the garment of him who is a surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. Right? Somebody wants you to take a risk, a foolish risk, you find a way to put that risk on them. That's their problem. Oh, oh you think I should take that risk and you're vouching for it? Okay, you take it. You take it. So, Okay, you want me to lend something to them and to take your word that they're good for it? Great, I'll take your property then because you're the one giving a promise for them, right? That shifts the burden and they either take that stupid risk and it's not your problem or they don't and they realize real quick that they shouldn't be vouching for that person. 14, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. If you try to do something good at the wrong time, or you try to do something and it's not the appropriate place for it, your desire to help is stupid. You are a harmful helper. You need to intelligently think about when this good thing can be done. Timing matters. Timing matters. There's a time to love, a time to hate. There's a time for things. And knowing when the time is is a part of being helpful. You want to be a good friend? Look for the right thing at the right time. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Look for the proper thing to do at the proper time. Verses 15 and 16. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Restraining the wind, grasping oil, these are things that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes to represent vanity. Okay, So useless activity. You want to hide a woman that is contentious? It's useless. You're not going to be able to hide it. The contention will come out. It will burst forth. The doors will blow off. The windows will shatter. People will hear the shriek. So what does this say about picking spouses? Be careful. That's the idea. Be careful. So you're careful. This is a parent, remember? The parent's looking back over life. The parent's going, I've seen a lot of people try to deal with a woman that was not controllable. I've seen a lot of people try 
to help and end up being harmful. And it ricochets back on them. I've seen a lot of people try to make people take risks and to take those risks at somebody else's expense. And that's a disaster for them, right? These are the three dangers that the parent is warning about in Friends. So we get to verse 17. This famous, famous verse. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So there's a pun here. As iron sharpens iron, and the word for sharpens is also quickens. It's the literal meaning of the word. Sharp relates to quickness of the mind, right? So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Now, countenance, you think about the way a person carries themselves. The literal word, pene, is face. Sharpens the face of his friend. Want a really pointy nose, hang out with other people. The point here, a man sharpens the face of his friend. The word face is also the word used in Hebrew for the edge of a sword or knife. So in other words, iron sharpens knives. They use a wet iron with iron. I say sharpen. And on the same side, a man sharpens or quickens the edge of his friend. Okay, so makes you sharper. Makes your edge sharper. Makes you quicker. There's a way in which if we spend time alone, we sort of slow down. There's this slowness, this lethargy of loneliness. And there's a mental sharpening, right? You can spend a lot of time convincing yourself of stupid ideas, and when you talk to somebody else about it, all of a sudden you realize how dumb it was real quick. There is this collapsing of bad ideas that occurs in discussion and argumentation, and there's this pressure to be better and to improve. That's not true of all company. Bad company corrupts good morals. But the friend that's a true friend is the friend that sharpens you. The people that dull you, that chip your edge, that bend the sword, these people are not friends. The friend sharpens the edge. And so we have to consider what are the activities that friends should be doing. Iron sharpens iron by rough friction. Hard work together, stressful fellowship, seeking to accomplish some good work, debating truth in order to come to a conclusion in is a heavy-grained friction at speed. Now, you use heavy grain to sharpen when there's a lot that needs to be done. If you have just a little bit of sharpening to do, you just got to make the razor edge come back. You use something that has less of a grain, and you move slower. If there is a need to deal with significant problems, there's big burrs, there is not an edge properly established there's going to be a sort of rough friction. Also, if there's really heavy work to do, there's going to be a lot of damage that comes along the way. What happens to a sword when a sword clashes against another sword? I think the edge gets better. There is damage to that edge. It gets bent in. It takes a lot to fix that. It takes a lot of grinding to deal with it. And what should you be doing with friends? You should be engaged in spiritual warfare. You should be engaged against the world, against the devil, against the flesh. You should be working together to accomplish things. Friends accomplish things together. So accomplishing things together, when you do that work, there's going to be a getting beat up, and then you're going to help each other and resharpen each other and care for each other. Friends and brothers are for adversity. So we can work together to deal with problems. We are called to be kings. We are to do things. We are to conquer. We are to overcome. We are not made to sit around and complain about the world. We are made to conquer it. That's our job. And we do it together. We can't do it alone. There's a principle of concentration. And when we are together, it not only multiplies our force and provides concentration, but it increases operational effectiveness. It makes us sharper. 
And so, when we look at the church, the church is to be made up of those who sharpen each other. We all have failings, and we need each other to sharpen each other. Debating truth in order to come to conclusion is a part of that friction. Working hard together on stressful and difficult problems. This high friction causes sparks to fly, causes burrs to be knocked off, and it speeds along improvement. Pushing each other to do better, to put off sin, and to be ambitious is a part of what friends do. So I encourage you to be ambitious. The Lord Jesus Christ did not purchase you with the blood of infinite value so that you could be useless. He bought you and he promised he was going to make you useful. He's given you powers and fruit. He's given you friends. He's made it so that you can do things. Try. You will be shocked at what happens when you apply the law of God to do things. Now, sometimes sharpening, again, requires the razor's edge. It requires a finer work. Calm discussion of the word of God between friends can finally sand an edge to a razor's sharpness. Social interaction exposes the inward man. It brings opportunity for honor and shame. The shame is useful because it's pain that helps us to change. The honor is useful because it encourages us to continue in what we ought to do. But there's a danger with honor even for good things. We are so prone to applaud ourselves and to lift ourselves up in our hearts and then to become lazy and to rest on our laurels thinking that our time is our own and that we have bought ourselves. We have been bought with a price and the days are evil. We are called to redeem the time. Do not sit on laurels. If you've accomplished things, you have time left. Until the Lord calls you, you're to be working. Make sure when you die, you die working. Make sure that you are accomplishing things to the end. When John Calvin was on his deathbed, he was exhausted and he was continuing to write books. And he was encouraged to rest. And he said, would you have the Lord find me idle? Let that be the cry of your own heart when you desire idleness. God uses people to help us to become more finely honed. But the influence of the wicked is to blunt the blade, to, be, to chip the edge, to bend the sword, and to use us up in combat. Bad company corrupts good morals. Friends sharpen you. Let me make sure you walk away with that. Good friends sharpen you by their good example. They draw us to honor what's honorable, to praise what's good. Good friends will wound us for our good in the right season. Let me tell you, it's not a time to do everything at every time. You sharpen blades before battle, not in the middle of battle. Right? You figure out which thing you're supposed to do when. Good friends push each other to be better than they could have been, to go farther than we otherwise could have gone. Friendships slow us down while we learn to work together, and they speed us up along the way as we urge each other to go faster and to work harder. If you never figure out how to work together, you're not going to get the benefits of friendship. Um, one thing that I find is often, if you have a simple project, for example, one person doing it, can they just figure something out, they get better at it, they figure it out, they do the thing, they get faster. If you have two people, if they don't communicate at all, they can kind of just get in each other's way. Just bumble into each other. If they stop to talk and to figure out how to do something best, how to organize it, they will not do anything in the project while they're talking. They will fall behind. The person working by themselves will look like they are doing more and getting more done. But the people who organize to figure something out and then start working together, they will not only double the speed as though there's two people, they will divide the labor. And they will have the benefits of increasing speed by making it so that they can specialize and intelligently cooperate. And they will more than double the pace of the person working by themselves. You must learn to work together. You must learn to work together. 
What good works have you conspired to accomplish recently? You need to conspire with each other to do good works. You need to conspire with each other to do good for each other. The wicked are conspiring to get bad things done. The wicked are conspiring to do you harm. We might as well conspire to do good. And we might as well conspire to bless each other. Verse 18. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit. So he who waits on his master will be honored. Employment relationship Employment relationship does not preclude friendship. The wisdom of the world is, do not be friends with people who work for you. The wisdom of the world is that friends should not be people you know in work. But here, in the section on friendship, he who keeps or guards, protects, tends, attends to the fig tree will eat its fruit. And a master, an employer, a person in authority over employment is viewed here as being like a fig tree, a source of fruit. Good service yields rewards. Another interesting thing, if you're familiar with the word Adonai, the word master there is Adonai. It's the word Lord. And so that word, Adonai, is frequently applied to God. And so there we have this use of that title of master or lord applied. And that's the common term used for somebody who employs or has servants. Verse 19. As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. So the Hebrew here is really, as in water, face face, as a man's heart, heart. So the idea here, you look in the water and you're going to see your face back. If you examine yourself, you're going to see yourself. But here's the thing. When you have introspection, when you try to examine yourself, it's very easy to delude yourself with your own false thoughts. Who can know the heart? It's deceitfully wicked. We if we want to find something when we're examining, we often will. There's a confirmation bias. We look for evidence to support what we want. And so if you look at your own heart, wanting to find what's good, what do you think you'll find? So, it would be nice if God had given us a tool so we could accurately examine ourselves. Have you ever heard the analogy that the law is a mirror? The law of God is a mirror to examine ourselves. And we're supposed to look into the law of God and not be like those who are forgetful gazers who look and forget what they've seen. We use the law of God to look at ourselves and see what we really are. To see that we're breakers of it. That we're guilty of it. That we have much to improve upon and many places of failure. And therefore we have a great need for forgiveness. And so looking upon the heart to do so accurately requires the law of God. Now, furthermore, when we examine other people, you can't see their hearts. You can hear their words, see their actions, and examining other people and looking at their actions and their words helps you to see their heart. It is a reflection of the heart itself. A a third application is this. Just as there's a danger to us in introspection, seeing ourselves by distortion, there's a danger of seeing other people by distortion. Freudians like to talk about projection, where you take something that's your own motive and impose it onto other people. Well, Freud was not the first to notice this. The deceitful and the wicked think other people are deceitful and wicked. Have you ever had some evil intention and you see somebody else and they do something and you go, I wonder if they're doing that thing that you were just thinking about. If you have evil intentions, you're going to project evil intentions. Now, if you're wise, you're not going to think everybody's great. You're not going to go, wonderful, everybody's so nice. You're not going to be Pollyanna. Not everything will be rose-colored. You will recognize that there's much evil. 
but you will do it by using the law of God to find objective failures, not by pretending to have the power to read men's thoughts. You will use the law to differentiate between righteousness and wickedness. And you will objectively be able to say, this was the sin, and here's why it's sin. Here is the part of the word of God that shows it. As in water face face, so a man's heart, the man. That's actually, forgive me, the wording there in the Hebrew is, so a heart, man, man. That's the wording. Forgive me, I messed it up earlier. So you see the man and the man. There's this reflection there. All right. Um, verse 20, the grave and destruction, right? Sheol's the grave. The destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. This is true of observing other things. This is true of looking for some sort of a stimulant. So we're always looking for stuff to observe, and we're never able to fully come to a conclusion about other people by observing them because you ultimately can't read their hearts. Verse 21, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. The grave and destruction. So what we have there is this idea that reputation matters, and reputation makes it so that we can be of greater value. We should care about each other's reputations. Um, verse 22. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. We talked about that last time as well. We understand that... Uh, there is a need for wisdom and not just suffering. Suffering by itself will not teach. Wisdom is necessary. And we saw that in Romans today. Sanctification comes by the gospel, not just by law. You give commands and you can go through suffering, but unless you understand the news about the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin, the gospel, the good news, unless you know that, you're not going to be able to see foolishness driven out. It requires wisdom and not just suffering, not just curse from the law. So those are the things about friends. And then we get into capital. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. We're commanded here to manage capital well, to manage property with great care, to understand the condition of your property, its strengths and its weaknesses, to not be negligent in the management. And to attend to your herd. So knowing the state and then caring for. Attending to property occurs by working on it, giving it attention. Understanding the conditions makes it so you can work more effectively. And working helps to develop the skill. And those work together. This is the strength and the sharpening. Work makes it so that you can work better. So we are told to do that and then we're told why. Riches are not forever. If you don't maintain riches, they won't last. It takes work to get riches, and it takes work to maintain riches. One of the reasons the fool and his gold are soon parted is because he's lazy. And so there's a need to work to maintain property. And if you're in public service, you can be distracted from caring about your own property. You must maintain your property because riches are not forever. And if you're in public service and you become poor, Guess what? You won't have resources to continue your public service. Nor does a crown endure to all generations. You have to maintain power, you have to maintain station, and you have to maintain wealth. Honor, power, station, wealth, they all require work to maintain. They decay when they're left to themselves. Riches and authority are for service. Riches are power given to you by God to use for service. Crowns are power given to you by God for service. You use all power that God gives to you to serve, to honor him, to bless your neighbor, to love. These things are tools to be able to do good. Crowns and gold are power for doing good. Now, with that warning, they have to be maintained. We're also told about benefits 
of when you work, what happens? Well, if you own a field and you grow hay, that hay is useful. It can be used by itself. That hay can be used as food for animals. It can be used for other projects. So the hay has value. And when it's removed, here's the interesting thing about hay. If you have high plants, some animals can't eat them. They can't access the grass if it's there. And grass won't grow if it's totally hidden out from the sun. So when you remove the hay, during the season where you can't grow hay, the grass of the ground becomes available to animals who eat the grass. And the hay is available to feed to others. And so by good management, you will often find, and here's a business term that I'm sure many of you hate, you will often find synergies. And synergies are the things where if you do work, it results in benefits that are mutual. So by harvesting, you get to take the hay and the land becomes available to be able to provide grass to eat to animals. When the hay is removed, the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. You finish the harvest and you go, what should I do now? Well, you put the animals to eat in your fields because they're closer to your house. And that saves you time so you can go out away from your house to gather stuff not on your property in the wilderness. The idea here is you're finding work that's appropriate to the season. Harvest the hay, complete your projects. Gather resources from targets of opportunity. Gather natural fruits in season. So you have intentional planned projects. Great. That's necessary for good management. You have property, manage it well, have projects. Also look for targets of opportunity, the stuff that's just growing in the wilderness. You're looking for opportunity to pull in resources. This is good management. Verse 26, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. Lambs are young goats. If you don't care for the lambs, if you don't care for the things that are immature or that are developing, then you won't have future income producing property. This will allow you, if you do care for them, to have your immediate consumption provided for and to also have the future provided for. If you care for the immature products, projects, the small ones. In sales, there's a saying, you know, you live off of minnows and you feast off of whales. This is sort of the same thing. This idea of being able to eat and to be sustained off of the little things. The lambs will provide your clothing. That's covering for your immediate needs. And the goats, the price of a field. The whales, the big things, create opportunities to build wealth. You take care of the little things and you look for opportunities to do the big things. And the big things provide you with capital to buy real estate. That's the idea. The price of a field is a capital asset. Work hard, provide for your immediate needs, look for opportunity to make big money. When those things succeed, you put them into income-producing assets. This is capitalism. This is the Bible teaching capitalism. Is that abundantly clear? This is the Bible teaching capitalism. You're called to be capitalists. You're called to take money and put it in investment. Now, verse 27. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. In other words, your daily bread. Immediate consumption. Daily bread is a prayer for a competent portion, not just for you, but for all of the things under your authority. You pray for your daily bread. What you're asking for is, I need what's good for me. I need what's good for the people I'm supposed to provide for. I need what's good for the people that rely upon me. You, your family, and your servants. If you're an employer, you have gone through the how am I going to hit payroll experience? No, just me. No other employers ever had that. Talk to any business owner. They will talk to you about the joys of meeting payroll. Providing for your maidservants is a big deal. It is something that people who own businesses think about. They think about how do I make sure everybody gets paid. Making sure there's food there for the daily consumption. Now one other thing here. There's the baby lambs. Where do the baby lambs come from? They come from the female goats. Now, female goats, do they have babies when they're undernourished? Not healthy ones. Not ones that tend to survive. So this work makes it so that you get the hay, you get the grass, you make it so that you're able to get stuff out of the property, you're able to pull in food from the edges through the, uh, the natural things, and there's a provision for the female goats, and there's a provision for the lambs. And as the female goats continue to be nourished well, there's milk for the babies 
and also milk for human consumption. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food. The rams, the male lambs, I'm sorry, the male goats, they're strong enough, they're able to reproduce. They're able to be sold. They're able to be eaten. You don't need that many of them to have plenty of lambs. You can eat the weak ones. You can sell them off. All of the sources of capital there, all of the different ways of being able to use them, the the ability to get their wool to be able to have clothing, the ability to get them for meat, the ability to have the milk, the ability to sell them, the ability to be able to get daily needs and to get capital goods. If you manage the little that the Lord has given to you, it will grow into much. That is the tendency of capital management. That is the tendency of working hard. That is the tendency of taking little by little and putting it on top of itself and investing to build. The Lord blesses it. There's a blessing on the process of working and accumulating and the expectation that you can have an inheritance to leave to your children and your children's children. It's how you get the resources you need to engage in public service. The accumulation of capital and then rather than the selfish use of it, the consumption for your own entertainment and amusement, you use it to grow in wisdom and to spread wisdom and to lead. This is the call of capital. If you don't have it, work hard. If you do have it, put it to work and work hard. You are called to public service. If you have wealth, that's a call to public service. If you're not fit for public service because of other qualifications, get qualified so you can use your wealth for public service. This is the good life, the life of increasing responsibility. And capital gives you power to do more good works. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, those with speaking rights.